hustle and bustle of Christmas, you're focused on him. I want to begin with uh, our Advent celebration and use that as a means of reviewing the four servant songs that uh, we have been looking at. In fact, on your table, you've got a chart and uh, on one side, it says the servant songs of Isaiah. And you got all four songs that we have studied with their focus. On the back side of that, you got the fourth servant song, which is the one that we're going to zero in on today and is really, truly the most important one. And so I want to begin by reviewing. Remember, in Isaiah 42, we saw the first servant song and the focus was on the manner of the servant we the message was behold meet my servant and what stood out was his manner being gentle quiet and faithful he wasn't forceful he wasn't violent he wasn't rebellious and if you're here today and you're broken you're crushed and your hope is just a flickering flame well behold Meet my servant is what the Lord's saying to you. He's better than false hopes in false gods. And you have his word on it. And so we want to light the proclamation candle because, or the, I'm sorry, the promise candle because we have his promise that his servant can meet our deepest needs. And then we came to the second servant song, Isaiah 49. And the focus there was on his mission. And Lord said, and the servant himself says, Behold, mission impossible will be accomplished. And what was that mission? That mission was to restore things to the way they ought to be in God's original design. To restore Israel to covenant blessings and to reach the nations with the light of salvation. And so if you're here this morning and the world seems out of control and chaotic, and that might be the larger world that we live in, or maybe your world is chaotic. Understand that he can accomplish the impossible, and you can be prepared for that final restoration. And so we light the preparation candle, remembering that the servant enables us to be prepared for that final restoration. The third song we looked at last week, Isaiah 50, and the focus was ministry. Behold, fulfill, and finish your ministry. And we saw that the way the servant is going to accomplish this global restoration is really quite simple. Being a fully devoted Christ follower, or not Christ follower, I guess he's following himself, following the Lord. He's going to be a fully devoted disciple and his own faithfulness even in the midst of the utmost suffering is going to enable him to give a word of strength to the weak and so we want to light the proclamation candle remembering that our savior has suffered so that he can speak a word of strength to the weary. And so if you're weary, listen to the voice of the servant. Today, we're in Isaiah 52 through 53, 52, 13. And the main focus is on the meaning of all this. What, how, what, what's the meaning of this? What's the meaning of this increasing suffering? And how does it relate to the meaning of Christmas? And I would put forth to you that once we understand the meaning of the suffering servant. Then we understand the meaning of Christmas and we're able to participate in it. And so we want to light the, uh, oh, I hope I have juice there. Light the, uh, what I like to call the participation candle, I think of the wise men, the magi, who came and participated by giving and worshiping the king. And that's what we want to do today. And so let's, uh, turn in your Bibles. I hope you have your Bibles. And if you do, please turn to Isaiah 52, verse 13. Isaiah 52, verse 13. This is going to be the fourth and final servant song in Isaiah. If you've been reading through Isaiah, we only have two more readings and we'll have completed the book. It is 
it has just been such a blessing for me. And so as we get into this song, uh, we'll read it as we go through and study it. I just want to hit uh, five major differences uh, with this fourth song because this is climatic and it, it is different. And the first thing I want you to see is the speakers are unique in this song. Because up to this time in the first song, it was the Lord speaking. In the second and third song, it was the servant himself speaking. And now in the fourth song, it's going to be the Lord speaking at the beginning and the end. But in the middle, instead of the servant speaking, it's going to be this group called We, Us, and Our. In a sense, it's going to be us speaking. It's going to be us observing. It's very interesting. And so instead of the servant speaking, it's going to be his servants who have come to see what he means, what is the meaning of his suffering. And what's interesting is the voice of the servant himself is silenced. We do not hear from him. And that's emphasized in this. The second thing I want you to see different is the suffering is, is, is graphic but now it's explained. And that's why I've said the focus on this study is the meaning of this. The suffering is now graphic. It will be a brutal execution, but it will be explained as having saving purposes for all sinners. Number three is the switch from the servant's trust to his triumph. The switch from the servant's trust. In all three of the previous songs, the increasing Trust and confidence of the servant has been a steadfast note. But here, the trust is now transformed into triumph. And we're going to find out how that trust turned into triumph. The fourth thing I want you to see that's different about this one is that the significance of the gospel is revealed. The significance of the gospel is revealed. This song, and having now read through Isaiah Many times, but this, this, this year and this time in the last 24 days, really grasping, truly this song is the heart of Isaiah's theology. It's the heart of the Old Testament theology, and truly it is the heart of the gospel as revealed in the New Testament. It's one of the greatest passages of the Bible, uh, of all passages. Here's what just some people say about this chapter. May, the fourth servant song may, without any exaggeration, be called the most important text of the Old Testament. Another commentator says this, the most central, the deepest, and the loftiest thing that the Old Testament prophecy has ever achieved. And then John MacArthur's Grace to You ministry says, no passage gives a clearer explanation of Christ's atoning work for sinners than Isaiah 53. It's truly the first gospel written 700 years before Christ came to earth. And because of its rich, rich detail, the most astonishing prophecy in the Old Testament. Fifth thing I want you to see is the structure. The structure is different. The structure of this song, unlike the other ones, is composed of five stanzas or five choruses. And each stanza or chorus is three lines long. And the first line of each of the three lines tells you the main idea of that stanza. And so you'll see that as we go along. Now, I've already planned. We'll come back to this. We'll, we'll lead into Easter in 2020 breaking down each of these five stanzas. Today, I want to give you the overview, and I just want you to see this, and it's in your notes. What is the Lord and his repenting servants, this us, we, and our, what are they telling us in this fourth song? And I would put forth to you, they are telling us the meaning of the servant's suffering and the means of his ultimate success. The meaning of the servant's suffering and the means of his ultimate success. And you say, well, what is that? Well, I have it summarized there for you, and just as fully and completely, but we'll see it as, we'll see it develop 
as we go through the, through the uh, song itself. But notice, the suffering servant is the sovereign Savior. That's really the message. The trust is turned to triumph because he voluntarily became our sacrificial substitute to fulfill the Lord's saving purposes, to restore his kingdom on earth, and fill all creation with his glory. That is the meaning of this song. You say, that's a lot. Well, yeah, because it just summed up all of Isaiah. And guess what? It just summed up all of history. Okay, so that's pretty good for one sentence. And that's exactly what he's trying to do. But what's that mean for us? Well, it means now sinners can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the servant alone, so that they, we, can become his servants who voluntarily suffer with him to be glorified with him in his coming kingdom. Basically, it means that we can go from sinners to be saved and servants who follow him in his suffering and his ultimate exaltation. Well, let's look at it. How did the suffering servant succeed in becoming the sovereign savior? How did trust turn into triumph? Well, the five stanzas tell us. Number one, here's the first one. Success. This first stanza kind of gives you the big picture. The servant will triumphantly succeed in an unlikely manner. The servant will triumphantly succeed in an unlikely manner. So let's read the first stanza, remembering that the first verse tells us what this stanza is all about. Look at uh, chapter 52, and let's look at verse 13. Behold. My servant will prosper or succeed. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished, or you could translate that appalled at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus, he will sprinkle many nations Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. So that first line, behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted is the main idea. The point is this, the servant's suffering will end up being glorious. And so there's two things I want you to see. The first is this. The Lord himself declares his servant will exceed on his mission and be highly exalted because of his success. The Lord himself is declaring. It's as though God's saying, I have decreed this. I have ordained this. He is my chosen one, and he will succeed on his mission. Now, the key word there is this word in the New American is prosper. In some of your Bibles, it says be successful. In others, it says act wisely. Probably the, the simplest translation is he will succeed. Okay. Now, why the difference in translations? Here's why. Because they're all correct. It's because they're all correct. And here's the idea of this word. This word is a wisdom word, and, it, it, and its base meaning is to act wisely, to see life from God's perspective, and to live accordingly. But when you see life from God's perspective and live that out, God says you will ultimately prosper and succeed. So the point is, do you want to translate the word as to the cause, living, uh, acting wisely, or the effect, succeeding according to God's eyes? And I think the idea here is on the success of what he has done as a wise servant. So here's the idea. To succeed in life, you do God's will, God's way, according to God's word. It's that simple. And when you trace this word, prosper or success, you're really more familiar with it. Those of you that know your Bibles more than you think, this is what God has always said to Abraham, to Moses, to Joshua, to David. Think of Joshua. Be strong and courageous and basically 
live according to my word and you will succeed in my mission. That's the idea. It's my paraphrase, Jeremy. That's a little paraphrase there. Uh, the point being that all, if you're going to succeed in God's mission in life, then you need to live life from his perspective and be obedient. But even the best of these servants, Abraham, Moses, David, Joshua, they all failed in ultimately doing that perfectly. The good news is the servant will succeed where where all other servants have failed. Now, what is the mission that God has given to him? Well, we've seen it in the four in the three previous songs. In Isaiah 42, the mission is to restore the whole creation back to the way God wanted it. In Isaiah 49, it's specifically restore Israel to covenant blessings and reach the nations. And in Isaiah 50, it was to be a fully devoted disciple at any cost. And the good news is the servant will succeed at all of that because he will live his life from God's perspective and obey perfectly. Now, what's the reward for that? That's what this verse tells us. Look at again in your Bibles. He will be high. That's one word. Lifted up, that's a second word, and greatly exalted. His reward is going to be a three time, three times exaltation. So just like in Isaiah 6, God is thrice holy. I mean, he's not just holy, he's holy, holy. No, he's not just holy, holy, he's holy, holy, holy. Well, the same way here, the servant isn't just exalted, he's just not high, he's lifted up. And he's not just lifted up, he's greatly exalted. And just how high up is that? Well, in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord, he said he saw the Lord, these same words, high and lifted up. So how high up is this guy going to be? As high as God. And what does that tell us about who the servant ultimately will be? And so that's the idea. And of course, in Christ's resurrection, he was raised up. He was lifted up in his ascension. And he was greatly exalted at the right hand of the Father. And in his coming kingdom, he will be exalted over all creation. So we see how this will be fulfilled in the Lord. But here's what you want to see. The servant is going to succeed in this in a very unlikely manner. And that's what verses 14 and 15 are telling us. Just as many in Israel were appalled at the servant's brutal humiliation, where he was marred, and they said, is this even who, who is this man? I can't even tell. And then he was so brutalized, they said, is he even human? He was so appalled. And yet, at his exaltation, Gentile kings will be astonished. And so here's the idea. And I found this quote, and it sums up this verse. Dwayne Lindsay put it this way. The servant will be humbled below what is human to be exalted above what is human. Isn't that good? So what's the meaning? What's the meaning of this brutal humiliation And what's the purpose of this global exaltation that we see? Well, look at verse 15. There's just a hint of it. We'll see more of it. But look at that word sprinkle. Here's the idea. He's going to be so humiliated. People are going to look at him and be appalled. And they're going to like, I I just got to turn away. And then he's going to be exalted so high that even the most powerful people on earth are going to be astonished. And the reason for that is he's going to do he's going to sprinkle and you're like what is that watering his lawn bill no not that kind of sprinkling it's a technical word from Leviticus for blood sprinkling in order to cleanse the way into the holy of holies so the the we're getting a hint here 
that through this utter humiliation and great exaltation, he is going to be able to cleanse even pagan kings to come and worship him. Ah, the magi are going to be able to enter his presence. You see, the reversal is radical. Astonishing exaltation, but only after appalling, appalling humiliation. And guess what? To be this low and go that high is unheard of in the world's eyes. You don't get humiliated in order to be exalted in the world. No, in the world, what do you do? You make a name for yourself. You establish yourself. You step on people to lift yourself up. You don't let anybody put you down. And so the world says, we've never seen anything like this. We have never heard of anything like this. And of course, we as Christians know this is Philippians 2, isn't it? This is Philippians 2, who was so high... He became so low, obedient unto death, that he may be exalted with the name that is above every name. Well, there's the overview. Success. By wisely following God, even if it takes you to the lowest dregs of humanity, to be exalted and honored as equal to God. Well, how did the suffering succeed? Number two, let's start with the humiliation, shunning. You could put scorning, you could put snubbing, but shunning captures the idea. The servant will be rejected due to his shameful suffering. We see this in 53 verses 1 through 3, the second stanza. The servant will be rejected due to his shameful suffering. So let's read it. Look in your Bibles. First lines, the key line. Who has believed our message and to whom... Has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of a parched ground, just a a tiniest spark of life. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Who is this guy? He's average. He he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. And therefore, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. We rejected him. We shunned him. We snubbed him. We scorned him him and so we see the servant's suffering was so shameful that his own people turned and despised him so first thing i want you to see is that that uh we're introduced to this many in this verse many okay and um we're, we're like, you know, who, who, who's, who's the we here? Who's, who's talking? Well, two things I want you to see. First of all, the many now testify that they could not believe. They could not believe what they had heard, and they could not see God's mighty arm at work. What, the, what they're saying is, look, we saw him humiliated, and we thought this couldn't be anybody great. And we heard that this humiliated one had become an exalted one. And we just couldn't see God's mighty arm at work in this guy's life. Well, who's speaking here? Well, we kind of don't know because they're not identified. And that's really cool because it's general enough to be any of us. In fact, if you're here and you are born again... That's your testimony. When I first heard this, I couldn't believe it. And when I first heard about Jesus, I couldn't see God at work in him. But then God works in our hearts. We repent and now we go, whoa, who would believe such a thing? Who could see such a thing? That's the idea here. 
So they're reflecting back on the first three verses, and they're saying, man, when I first heard this, I couldn't believe it. And when I first heard it, I couldn't see God at work. Now, ultimately, who is speaking in this passage? Remember, this is a prophecy. Ultimately, who's going to be speaking is that generation of Israelites when the Lord returns, and it will literally be the nation of Israel, and they will see Christ returning with us, his church, and they will look up and see the one whom they have pierced, and they'll go, whoa, I didn't believe it. Whoa, I didn't see it coming, but now I do. It's a beautiful thing. Are they hearing this message or are they sharing it? Well, it's both. Initially, they heard it and they couldn't believe it, but once they believed it, now they share it. Second thing I want you to see is the many incorrectly reckon the servant to be unworthy, so they reject him. The many incorrectly reckon the servant to be unworthy, so they reject him. I wish we had time, but here in verses 2, look at verses 2 and 3. His life is considered to be insignificant. This guy's just a root struggling out of rocky soil. He's just a tender shoot. I mean, this you know, just pluck that thing right out of the ground. Here's the idea. He's unimportant. He's unimpressive. When you looked at him, there was nothing special about him. He, he, he didn't have Hollywood movie star looks. He didn't look like a leader. He didn't look impressive. He was unimportant, unimpressive, but ultimately he became very unpopular. And who wants to hang with a loser, right? world doesn't do that. Sports, you know, right now, Patrick Mahomes owns this town. And as much as I love him, I'm tired of seeing him on my TV. Why? Because he's successful. But I tell you what, the second he can't play, the world's done with you. The world is done with you. You say, well, and you don't have to be Patrick Mahomes to experience that in your life. We've all experienced that. Where we were very important, considered very, uh, treated very well, and then all of a sudden we're of no use and we're put to the side. Well, your Savior had that same experience. His suffering became so shameful because they considered him to be cursed of God. It's like they're saying, look at him, behold, he is so sinful, he is so cursed of God for his own sin. And they say, because of that, we don't want anything to do with a cursed guy like that. We don't want anything to do with him. And so they reckon him to be unworthy of their respect, much less their worship. And the only thing he's worthy of is being despised, disrespected, disregarded, and just dissed in general. But they were wrong, weren't they? They were wrong. Because if you've been reading through Isaiah, that tender shoot and that little root ends up becoming the Davidic king. We've seen this in reading through Isaiah. They were wrong, but eventually they repent of this wrong estimation and their wrong response. What made the difference? Well, the answer is in verse 1 of chapter 53. Look at verse 1. What, what happened was God revealed his arm... God revealed his work in the servant and they believed. That's what's going to happen. And if you're here this morning and you just don't really see Jesus' worth, it's because the Lord has yet to reveal through his word just how significant Jesus is and you have yet to respond in faith. You say, oh, I, I respect Jesus, but how have you lived 2019? Have you put him first each day? Have you, have you honored his word? Have you been in his word? Are you with his people to worship and to serve? You see, it's easy to say we esteem him highly. But it's how we live shows whether we're dissing him 
instead of respecting him. You see, what they ultimately come to see, you don't really see the suffering servant until you see him as your substitute. And that's the third stanza. That's the third stanza. How did this suffering servant succeed? How was his success? After such shunning, why did their attitudes change? It's because of substitution. The servant will be received as the sinner's substitute. The servant shall be received as the sinner's substitute. And that's verses 4 through 6. Let's read it. Remember, the first line gives you the main idea. Let's look at it. 4 through 6. Surely our griefs he himself bore. You see, in the previous, they said, look at his griefs. Look at his suffering. We want nothing to do. Now, all of a sudden, they're saying, whoa, that wasn't his suffering because of his sin. That was my, his suffering for my sin. Is that radical? Wow. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. We thought he was cursed for his sin. Oh my gosh, it was because of my sin. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being, the punishment for our peace fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. By his pain, we get healing. All of us like sheep have gone away. Each of us has turned to his own way. But, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. I'm sorry, I've got to preach this. Amen. Proclamation candle. This is, what Chris, this is what Christmas is to be proclaimed at Christmas. The babe is our substitute. The servant's suffering is substitutionary. It's vicarious. It's in our place. Did you notice as I read through that? Look in your Bibles. There's this contrast. Him, ours. Him, ours. I counted it up. Count it up in your Bible eight times. Him, us, him, us. Two things I want you to see. The many initially rejected the servant because they thought he was suffering for his own sins. This is how sinful we are. We see someone suffering and we go, I don't want anything to do with them. But you've got to understand, this one who was suffering was claiming to be the Messiah. I'm your leader. Yeah, but you're a loser. I'm your leader. Yes, but you're suffering like a shameful sinner in public. We don't want anything to do with you. You see, they rejected the, the shameful servant because they thought he was being cursed for his own sin. Look at verse 4. These words, we can't go into deep word studies, but these words, griefs and sorrow, griefs and sorrows, Basically, they saw a sad, sin-sick individual. That's a good paraphrase. You are a sad, sin-sick individual. Look at verse 5. Note the words for brutal execution and punishment. Pierced through and crushed are words in the Bible that point to a brutal condemnation and execution. Of course, New Testament, what do we know what, what it was. It, it was the most brutal means of execution in the known world, crucifixion. And what great prediction pierced, you know, for the nails. But the second thing I want you to see is the many finally realized that the suffering servant was saving sinners as their sacrificial substitute. At first... You're suffering for your own sins. Then they realize, no, he's suffering to save sinners as our substitute. 
and they have this change of heart. It's called repentance. It's where you thought this way about Jesus and your sins, and now you turn and you think this way about Jesus and your sins. You see, now they receive the saving servant, and they're saying he's being cursed of God, not for his sins, but for whose? For mine. He's not suffering for his sins, but ours. He's not crushed because he's cursed. No, it's because we're cursed. He's not dying for his own depravity. He's dying for my depravity. We are the ones. Look down at verse 6. We are the dumb sheep who by nature choose to do what's wrong and stray from the path of God and don't listen to the voice of his servant. Remember, the last song ended, listen to his voice. If you fear God, listen to his voice. No, we're the dumb sheep that don't listen to the suffering servant who is really the shepherd king. And it's not just some of us. This verse says all of us, each one of us, every single sinner And yet in this context, it appears to be that it's every sinner who repents and receives the servant as their substitute. You see, the idea is this. No one will be saved. No one will be saved apart from the servant's suffering. And unless we repent and receive him as our substitute. So what's the meaning of the servant and his suffering? I have this in your notes. The suffering servant was born to die. He was born to die as the saving substitute for every sinner who repents. Here's the idea. The meaning of the cradle is always found in the cross. The meaning of the cradle, the meaning of Christmas is found in the cross. And here is the clearest possible revelation of substitutionary penal atonement. You go, man, what is that? It's what we just studied. So you don't have to be a theologian, and you never have to use the word penal again. But you do have to believe in substitution. Because here's what this passage is saying. If we deny this doctrine, we do so to our own damnation. But, Many in our day do deny this. And let's face it, if you think through this with human reasoning, you won't see the substitute. And so many reject this today on the basis that this is cosmic child abuse. They see an angry God in the Old Testament forcing his son to die for the sins of others. And they cry out, cosmic child abuse? I cannot believe in a God like this. They think God is somehow enjoying crushing and punishing his son on the cross. But that's not how the suffering servant will succeed. They miss that this isn't forced, it's voluntary. And that's number four. This is voluntary submission. The servant silently submits to unjust suffering to save his sheep. The servant silently submits to unjust suffering to save his sheep. Let's look at verses 7 through 9. We're making good headway. Pray for me for the last 10 minutes, all right? Okay, let's go. First verse is the most important. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open up his mouth. This is the original silence of the lamb. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before his shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? What's the point there? Who would have thought he would die in the place of people who deserved to be struck dead? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any, any 
any deceit in his mouth. Look at that last part. We've talked about unfaithful Israel as a servant. They didn't serve faithfully with their life or their lips. Here's the servant who has done both. Now, here's what I want you to see. First thing I want you to see. The servant is the silent lamb in his suffering. He is the silent lamb in his suffering. Just, what's that mean? You know what that means? He did it willingly. He wasn't forced by the Father. He did it voluntarily. How do we know that? Look at your own life. There's basically in the Bible and life two responses to suffering. Either we protest that it's unjust, I didn't deserve it, or we confess I'm just getting what I deserve. But whatever happens, when we, when we encounter suffering, we verbalize. Come on, people. Come on. I mean, you know, and I'm as guilty, but I, I get a kick out of social media. I mean, you just get unjust treatment at a fast food place, and you are telling people about it. I want you to know how what they just did to me. What'd they do? Yeah, that's irritating. And you're telling us about it. Here was the greatest injustice in all of history. A perfectly sinless man accused unjustly and condemned and he utters not a word. Why? Because he was voluntarily doing it. Why? Because it was his father's will. It would accomplish his father's purpose and he wanted to please his father. But also, it was for the good of the sheep and the sinners that he would save. I'll do this. I'm not forced to do this. The silence. Here's the deal. The silence of the lamb is the sound of his voluntary submission. Do you hear it? Do you hear it? The silence of the lamb is his voluntary submission. And number two, the servant is the sinless lamb of God who suffers for God's saving purposes. You see, he was silent because he was voluntarily submitting. And what he was submitting was himself as a sinless sacrifice. No violence and no deception. Oh, there's so much here. But there's one more stanza we need to look at. And this last one summarizes the answer to the question, how did the suffering servant succeed in being exalted? How did his trust turn to triumph? And the number five, point five, is sovereignty. The servant's success will restore God's kingdom on earth the servant's success will restore god's kingdom on earth let's read the last stanza remembering the first line is the most important but the lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering he will see his offspring He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he, the servant, will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, his personal experience of this suffering and this exaltation, the righteous one, my servant, the sinless one, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore... I will allot him a portion with the great, or the many is the more literal, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded or intervened for the transgressors. The servant's suffering satisfies the wrath of God and the will of God. Now, you have there, I listed 
I think, six different words. There's so much packed into this. Every one of those ideas are laid out in that passage, in those three verses, in just three verses. I just want to hit a couple of them. First of all, propitiation. That's a theological word. It's a biblical word. It's in your Bible, and it means satisfying the just wrath of God on sin. The suffering was God's will, and it satisfied. And so you see this in this verse. Look at verse 10. But the Lord was pleased. Now, this is where the cosmic child abuser folks see child abuse. But this isn't pleased like, oh, good. My son is suffering. I so enjoy his torture. It's pleased in the sense of this will fulfill my saving purposes. So it's not a pleasure of emotion. It's a fulfillment of my purposes to save sinners. I want to see this done because I have a greater goal of saving many sinners from their sin. And the son says, I have that same purpose, Father. I voluntarily will do that. Resurrection. Notice, even though this guy is going to be pierced through and crushed, words for execution, it says that he will see his offspring and he will prolong his days. That's Old Testament prediction of what we now know is resurrection from the dead. Justification. Why is all this being done? The righteous is dying for the sinner so that he can be exalted and declare sinners righteous. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Exaltation. We've talked a lot about that. Look at number five, intervention. This word for intercession in verse 12. Can, is a military term that can mean interceding, which Christ is doing at the right hand, but it can also mean to intervene in a military way to deliver people. The Lord has intervened for rebels. Aren't you glad he did? He intervened to deliver us. Oh, there's so much here. But let's end with celebration. Let's end with celebration. The bottom line is this. The suffering of the servant pays for a global celebration with people from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. That's why the Thompsons are where they're at. And you know what follows? Oh, would you, even if you're not reading Isaiah with us, promise me this, that this week you'll read Isaiah 54 and 55 because 54 is a shout of joy singing a new song of salvation and 55 is a global invitation to come and so we end with the purpose candle the christ candle and we light that lord willing ah see this is what happens in candle things right grace we have faulty candles or candle lighters, right? So here's the deal. Here's the deal. What's the meaning of the cradle at Christmas? It's simply this. The cradle means that a baby was born to be crushed for sinners and exalted and he's coming again. A baby was born to be crushed and he's coming again. First advent, second advent. Are you prepared? Do you know the promises? Are you a prepared people? Do you proclaim them? And are you participating, not at a distance, but that you actually have responded like the witnesses in this song. You've gone from saying, oh, I was mistaken about him to where now I treasure him. Are you with me? Man, this is good stuff. And just think. We're just in the Old Testament. Don't you dare ever unhitch from the Old Testament. But understand, we have a perspective on this that Isaiah didn't, that Israel didn't, 
because we live on this side of the first advent. And yet, like them, we're not quite clear what's coming in the second advent, but we know his promises are sure. And when we cling to them, we will be prepared. And we need to proclaim that like the first time, he's coming again. And we need to remain fully devoted disciples who participate in that celebration. Isn't that good stuff? Come back 2020 Easter and we'll break this down for five weeks. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come. We are dumb sheep. We are humbled at your amazing grace. Because we're born, Lord, with a wrong estimation of who you are. And we live and we stray, and there's none righteous, no, no. But then you intervene with your mighty arm, and you reveal that in your humbled, humiliated, suffering servant, you were saving sinners by your righteous one. And by your grace, through faith in him, we have been saved. And so we know the meaning of the cradle is the cross, but ultimately a crown. And so let us live that way. Let us witness that way. Let us work that way. And let us worship you as the one who has come and is coming again. And all God's people said, Amen. Hey, Merry, Merry Christmas to you.